You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. David Stevenson is the author of Big Data Demystified, and he's a consulting data strategist, primarily working out of Europe. I'm excited to, to have my chat with David uh, on the show here today, because uh, I think David has a really good way of connecting a highly technical background with the business and being able to kind of act as a bridge between these two uh, departments. All right, David, are you on the line? Yes, I'm here. I'm super excited to talk to you. So we, we have David Stevenson, uh, the consultant and author of Big Data Demystified. Uh, we uh, met through, uh, somehow we met, I think it was on LinkedIn originally, and you also run uh, Predictive Analytics World Conference, uh, the UK edition, correct? Yeah, that's right. Awesome. Can, tell people a little bit, of, I, I gave you an intro there, but it's always better from the horse's mouth. So tell, tell us a little bit about what you're, uh, what you're up to. Yeah, sure. Um, so I used to run global uh, business analytics for the eBay Classifieds group and then uh, started off on my own a couple of years ago and have been doing consulting uh, mostly around Europe in uh, data strategy, data science program developments. And then recently uh, published a book also on the topic uh, with Financial Times Press called Big Data Demystified. Just doing a lot of work between speaking and teaching and training and consulting with companies really focused on uh, developing how they use data and analytics and helping them reach the next steps in that. So it's been keeping me, keeping me quite busy recently. Really enjoy it. Nice. And how did you get involved with, uh, I don't know if you, do you guys say PAW <laughs> or predictive yeah, analytics? Yeah, yeah, predictive analytics world. Yep. How did you get to, in that, involved in that? Yeah, well, I've been speaking at quite a number of conferences and the, um, the PAW conferences were some that I was speaking at. And I'd spoken with the organizing company, Rising Media. I'd spoken at three of their conferences. And at some point, they contacted me and said, you know, we've enjoyed having you speak with us all this time. And we're looking for a new conference chair for the London uh, Predictive Analytics World. Are you interested? And uh, after, you know, so many years of going to conferences and thinking, what would I do better? What would I do better? I thought, this is finally my chance to, to do everything that I've wanted to do to make conferences better. Uh, yeah, so I said yes. So I've been doing it now, uh, going on my second year. Nice. And like quickly, even though we're probably not going to go way deep into PAW, but what did you want to make better or what have you made better? Like what was wrong that you wanted to change? I was frustrated at the combination of the choice of who would be on stage. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of emphasis on just let's get, you know, a well-known company or someone who just has the name recognition without really focusing on quality content. For me as a practitioner, I really wanted to make sure, look, we have two days to select speakers, let's get speakers up there who are really going to give valuable content. Because I was frustrated in going, I'd go to so many conferences where out of, you know, out of 15 talks, there'd be one or two that I thought were valuable. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get a conference going where almost all the talks are really high valuable talks. Mm -hmm. So that was for me, the big opportunity. Make it the conference you want to go to kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Be the change you want to see in the world, as they say. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a good opportunity. It's been a ton of work, but um, yeah, I've enjoyed it. Excellent, excellent. Cool. So jumping in, I have 
ton of questions for you. I hope we can we can fit them all in. Uh, you you came recommended to me uh, from a previous guest and 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 friend, and I, I was excited to talk to you. So I also notice you know in your your work you practice design thinking. So I want to I want to jump into that in a little mm-hmm. bit. The first thing I wanted to ask you though is um, there, there's a, so there's a lot of technical knowledge required to do you know data science and analytics effectively. Can you talk to us a little bit about the non-technical knowledge that's required to to make solutions that are obvious, they're usable, useful, value is created, that kind of thing? What what's what's missing here? There, there's a high failure rate in this industry for projects. Talk to us about these non-technical skills that are also required. Yeah, I know that's a great question, and I think that's where we're having a lot of trouble when we look at the industry. Right, the stakeholder management is really difficult because, you know, as you're a technical expert, you're really focused on how to do these, you know, very technical, whether it's an analytic model or some type of software design or software implementation. But so much of what we do in a business environment and enterprise environment is understanding the stakeholders, understanding what the real challenge is, and then also communicating that with them throughout the process, especially at the beginning with the, this design element where you're really understanding what's happening and you're starting to produce the right solution. And you see a lot of solutions being developed very well, which were not designed to meet the actual challenge that the industry is facing. So yeah, that's a that's a huge thing. You don't have to state any names or anything, but can you give an example of, of a situation? You said something was being designed well, which I assume means technically it was being designed properly, but it wasn't communicating its value. It, its value wasn't inherent, uh, inherently obvious to the, the consumer. Have you had a situation where you've come in and it's like, whoa, <laughs> and then like what, what that before and after kind of look like? Yeah, no, there's quite a bit, quite a bit of that. Um, like, for example, you've got, we, I had one situation where the customer said, look, we need a certain solution to, to advise on how to change a product. You know, we, we have limited resources for enhancing a product in different areas. Can you advise a digital us? Pro- digital product? No, no, actually, um, uh, a physical product. Okay. Um, and so they said, look, we've got limited resources for enhancing these. And then, you know, you'd start to work on this or, the, or you know, third parties would start to work on this challenge. And then they deliver it, you know, maybe two months later and say, here's our recommendation of what to deliver. And then you'd speak with, with the person who would actually implement that solution. And they'd say, oh, I didn't mention to you that, you know, here's an additional limitation on which products we actually physically can improve. And you just have that whole wasted effort because there wasn't enough communication at inception. Throwing it over the wall kind of model. Yeah, yeah. Like, let us know when it's done. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And you and then they end up delivering something which wasn't practically usable. Got it. So how 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 do you approach this with, you, you know, you hear this repeated problem, which is a, a lot of places want to jump into using advanced techniques, you know, or bus, the, the business stakeholder might request machine learning or request AI. And so, and, and then maybe there is an opportunity to actually use that tool for a good reason, but then it's like, oh, wait, we don't have the data infrastructure in place to do any of that. So like level one is like, now we have to create the pipelines and all this kind of technical stuff that needs to be built out. How do you approach, because you're talked to, I, I know design, I'm, so this is preloaded with the fact that you know something about design thinking and, and that mm-hmm. you probably know about moving in small increments. So how do you, how do you show value soon and maybe work in a small increment where progress can be seen when 
there is maybe a large technical requirement that needs to be there before any of the quote useful cool stuff uh, can be delivered. <laughs> How do you do that? Yeah, no, that's that's great, and that's super important to to, to show value soon. Um, yeah, and I mentioned this also like in in one of the chapters of my book, and there's a couple reasons for that. You know, one is because um, the the more often you cycle back to your stakeholder, the more closely aligned you are with their needs. But also, if they haven't communicated clearly to you and you start to give them intermediate results, that gives them a chance to refine what they want and to clarify that and to, to kind of keep thinking with you, right? Uh, so you really want to get back to them as quickly as possible with, a, with a, a small result, right? And there's different ways to do that. Typically, what you do is you take a small sample of the data or a small subsection of the challenge. Uh, for example, instead of covering you know, the whole world for a company, all, you know, all the different markets, you say, okay, I'll take this one small market, um, you know, this one European country in this one product, you know, two weeks from now, I'll give you an estimate of what your solution would look like in this one limited area. And then you do that and then you get some iterations and then, then you say, okay, we'll do a pilot stage from the proof of concept You go to a pilot stage where you'll say, okay, I'll give you the full solution just for this market, but it's the full solution. And then you iterate into kind of finally production for the full range and such. But this iteration going from proof of concept to pilot to full deployment to automation uh, is a way to kind of step through that process. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of, the, I think it's the 30s Jason Fried quote, like build half a product, not a half-assed product. And, and yeah. also this concept of agile, right? Which yeah, I saw this really well illustrated one time. And it was like, it was a picture of a car from an agile perspective. And like stage one of the car was like the Flintstones car, right? And then mm -hmm. stage two was the automobile we picture in our head. The non-agile way being a car with no front wheels. Like it's, it's at yeah, two yeah. axles, yeah. no front wheels, but it's, but it's all polished. It looks like a modern automobile, but it's not, it's not a working, there's no value there, right? You can't actually drive and you can't transport yourself somewhere with that. So that's not, you know, anyhow, so that kind of reminds me of, of what you're saying there, you know, showing, showing some value on a small scale, um, you know, early. No, I, and I think that, you know, companies are really embracing agile, especially in the last few years, right? They're mm -hmm. really recognizing the value of it from a software perspective, but it's really mm -hmm. challenging from the analytics perspective mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons, partly because the data science and analytics, they don't fit into the scrum model very well for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons. And the other thing is uh, people who really love this field, they want to do the cool work. You know, they want to do deep learning. They want to do advanced models. Right. And when you tell them like, Hey, just give me, you know, a really super simple data driven model that, you know, meets 60% of the solution. Um, a lot of these guys who are focused on machine learning, that's not what they want to do. They want to jump, jump straight to the cool stuff. Mm -hmm. So I find in the projects that I do at the beginning, a lot of it is just kind of talking people down and saying, look, let's start simple. Let's not boil the ocean at once. Let's not start with the most advanced models. For some people, that takes a bit of convincing. Is that cultural at all? Is it tied to the amount of academic background they have? Like, do you see a pattern that goes with that? Or is it just a seniority thing? I, I hear that tends to be more at a, you know, more junior level uh, people that are, you know, closer to being out of school. Do you see a, a pattern or trend there? <laughs> yeah, I know that's a good question too. There, there's two things. Um, sadly, part of it is simply that uh, a number of people I, I've talked to would say, I only want to do interesting work, you mm -hmm. know? Um, their goal is not to, first and foremost, bring business value, but right. they want to do work that's interesting for them. And for some people, that's simply it. And as a manager, as a leader, 
you have to get people in place who, who are aligned with your business needs because mm-hmm. not everyone with the skills is, you know, and some of them will be very forthright about it. They'll say, look, I'm, I'm not interested in that work because it's not interesting. You know? And the other thing is the seniority. I think the longer people are around, the more value they recognize. Two things. One is from the basic models, you know, just there's so much work that's that so much, so many projects that'll work fairly well with just a, a simple regression or Bayesian model. And the other thing is just taking the time to say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to to do the simple iteration uh, and not not spend three months developing something before I deliver it. Yeah, I <laughs> I, I can understand that. So I'm curious, do you feel the solution when that kind of problem happens uh, is to train and assist those technical people in learning how to broaden their skill sets so they realize, you know, value is not entirely driven by the technology portion? Or is it like you really just need to bring in a different role entirely, like, or meet in the middle somewhere? Like, how do you address that? I think at a leadership level, you have to find the leaders who already understand that. Um, and then the, the people who are more junior, those are the people who need to learn it. I mean, I'll just give you a basic example. I mean, in years past, I worked in quantitative finance, right? So we would um, we would value these financial products like interest rate swaps and you know foreign exchange swaps and such. And I remember valuing some of these, and there would be there would be two parts of it. One was the foreign exchange, and one was the interest rate for uh, cross currency swap. And the one part was super hard to do, and the other part was really easy to do. And I'd get stuck on the really hard part. You know, I'd be focusing all my time on that. And at some point, my manager, who was who was an MBA, not super technical, you know, came to me and said, "Look, David, you know, the this the simple part that's ninety eight percent of the risk, you know, and the the complex part you're focusing on, that's only two percent of the risk. So, you know, it doesn't matter if there's a huge error with that part. Just get the simple part right, and we'll essentially get most of the risk um, quantified. Right. So that for me was a real learning point to say, mm-hmm. okay." understand what's the hardest thing is not necessarily what's the most important thing. Right. Not to mention most places are happy with a 98% test score. Exactly. In (laughs) in this area. Right. Right. We'll take 75 actually. (laughs) No. And that's the thing. And that's important to know your, your, uh, your stake owner too, because, you know, if you're working with marketing people, you know, an 80% solution is fine. Um, If you're working with finance, you know, these are the guys who really need exact numbers. Um, so really you have to understand what, you know, what your target audience needs in terms of precision. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit then about, uh, so I brought this up earlier, the, the concept of design thinking and how it can apply to, you know, data science and analytics work. How are you applying that in your, in your consulting work? Yeah, I know this is something really I'm focusing more and more on now because you'll see this Gartner has a nice visualization where they show design thinking, uh, iterating into, um, uh, the prototype phase and then iterating into the production phase. And the idea is that, um, you know, we all sort of know a hey, proof of concept is important, a prototype before we go into production. So we've all recognized that. But what we're really missing a lot is, is that initial stage where you're, this design stage where you're saying, look, what is my real business challenge? Um, and what's the solution that's really going to address that? And taking time to get the right people in the room, to get the right processes in place so that you're starting down the right path even before you start to build a prototype. Because just from experience, I've seen this where, you know, I was all proud of myself a few years back because I made this awesome prototype, you know, of something very quickly, very powerfully. And I thought, oh, this is great. I've done such a great job with this. And then by the time we went to deploy it, a few months later, they shut it down because 
it wasn't meeting the need of the company. And I thought to myself, you know, if I'd really taken the time, um, rather than just going with what the company asked me to do, because, you know, the CTO had said, let's build this. And so I'm, I was like, sure, let's build it. It looks cool. If I'd instead stopped at that point and said, look, let's first go through the design, the design process and figure out what we really should be building before jumping straight into the prototype, we would have saved a lot of time and effort. Yeah. One thing I'm, I, I fully agree with this, uh, the, the, this process, have you, have you ever tried using, um, you know, for example, if, if you're building a, a predictive model for something is prototyping something out that doesn't even use data, like, and I'm particularly thinking about solutions where there's going to be some type of visible user interface here, but actually using mockups of the, of the design in order to tease out whether or not the intended end user might use this. How are they going to react if they see a number that they don't expect or it's unbelievable information so that you can figure out how might we need to present this in a way that they will actually believe it if the real data actually ends up generating these kinds of results so that you can plan for that kind of contingency ahead and you don't end up you know with the head scratch or the unbelievable reaction is have you ever worked that approach before so that i haven't done in terms of you know testing the end user's response uh-huh. there's definitely this method you know of smoke testing where you put a feature out that doesn't really work just to right to see what kind of leverage it, it generates and such and we've done other work where instead of using a model we use user responses to gather information mm-hmm. in in various ways there's several ways we've done that uh, but just what you're describing now, I don't think, I can't think of a case where I've done that particular application. So when you talk about needs and, you know, empathizing with the customer, can you talk about like the end customer versus the business sponsor? I, I, I feel sometimes that when we talk about, quote, the business, sometimes people don't understand that the business is a collection of people just like a government (laughs) is a collection Mm -hmm. of real humans doing jobs and work and they have goals and needs and selfish interests and all these kinds of things so there's really a collection of end customers and the person that's you know paying for the project do you integrate that in your work and, and how do you how do you think about that when you're when we think about empathy you know which is early upstream in the design thinking process yeah, no, that's, that's a good question, right? Um, and as a consultant, it's always a bit tricky. I, I once did a project where I misunderstood who my actual budget sponsor was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found that out a little bit too late. So you know, <laughs> I, I spent all my time kind of tailoring to the needs of one person when the, you know, and then several weeks or months later, the, another person informed me like, I'm actually, you know, your budget sponsor here. Um, and did they have yeah. different needs? It was like they had different needs. Well, but also interest. it's yes, yeah, slightly different needs, but also it, it's very important who you maintain close communication lines. Sure. With, right. Um, so I find for myself, typically when I'm on a project, I'll have uh, I'll have projects w- who have different stakeholders than necessarily the budget holder, uh, and that's typically you know I'll work with the budget holder to clarify expectations. You know, where should mm-hmm. my priorities be? Um, but the stakeholder for a p- specific project is typically the person who I'm aiming to make sure I satisfy, you know, their requirements and such, because what we normally establish is that, look, if this stakeholder is, is happy with the results, then the budget holder will also be happy. Uh, the difficulty happens when there's a conflict of interest there, you know, and right. one person is clear about wanting one thing and the other person has a different view on it. That doesn't happen so often, but from time to time it does. I've been in that situation before and, you know, engineering's pain, you're, 
you're you're paying for your nut and you're working with product management or you know some other department and it you know because of those those lines but i think it's always you know important whether you're a consultant or you're internal to really understand kind of who's who's going to be evaluating the value creation here and and uh, and understanding what they're looking for is definitely important or else your yeah, failure chance of failure is is high <laughs> and yeah, it shouldn't absolutely. be silent be 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 uh suspicious of silence and, and when there's not a lot of communication that that's it's always a risk for me i just literally checked in with the client today because i'm not working with you know the stakeholder the, the main stakeholder i'm working with her team and everything was fine but it's you know when you're not hearing questions and stuff that's it's you got to keep those lines of communication open and making sure they're seeing the work you're doing and and evaluating and giving feedback on it uh we this throw over the wall thing is is a very high risk <laughs> Model, no, it's totally true. And I do one of the things I do is I train uh, junior data scientists. I do that on a regular basis. And one of the things I, I tell all the classes is, you know, make sure you put in a recurring appointment with um, mm -hmm. you know, the project owner, the, the sponsor. Um, and if it gets canceled, you know, reschedule it because yeah. you can't you can't afford to lose contact like regular contact with the sponsor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about this when we originally got on the phone about you know, what's going on in the industry with selling products and platforms versus, you know, focusing on outcomes and results. Mm -hmm. uh, the industry's the industry helps us build things. Um, things don't always turn into value. So is, do you have some advice on how to, how to approach this? And I'm not saying that all products are bad and platforms. I mean, without some of these, the, this new technology, none of this would be possible at the same time, you know, in the conference halls and, you know, a lot of people that I've talked to feel like, you know, the basically the, the, the large platform providers are making out like bandits. And yet every year Gartner's like, oh, 86% of projects will fail this year. And it's like, hmm, someone's making out really well here. <laughs> what is going on here? Like, yeah, I think part of the issue is that you can, you know, it's this thing where you can delegate um, authority, but not responsibility, you know, and people it's really tempting just to say, okay, I'm going to pass off this challenge to a product. You know, um, I'm going to, you know, I don't really understand how to address this, this product or address this challenge. So I'm going to buy a product which says it's going to meet the needs, you know, and then later, and you don't even know how to evaluate it because you didn't know it, how to do the problem in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I think that's definitely dangerous. Um, and you see different tools. I don't want to name any tools, but there's definitely tools out there that sell sort of, you know, the AI solutions. Um, and when you back test them, you know, you're like, well, what is this really providing me? You know, it's perhaps a terrible model. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe the vendor even knows it's not a good model, but it's their model. They're selling it and we're buying it. Um, that being said, I mean, if you understand the challenge and you know what you're buying, then it is a way to move very quickly. Right. You know? It's a way, there are certain tools which will let you automate repetitive work. Um, and that's, you know, that's a big payoff, right? If you know what you're getting. Uh, but there's definitely a lot of snake oil, snake oil being sold now in the market. Um, and I see that come up also. So let's jump over to um, skill gaps. You were talking a little bit about some of the training that you offer. So what the, if you're offering training, it generally implies that there's something missing there. What's missing that needs to be filled in yeah there's a couple of things one is that there's a tremendous number of people at least over in europe who um haven't been really trained solidly in analytic skills 
-hmm. but they they sort of go through a boot camp and then cross over into this analytics slash data science space right mm -hmm. so these guys are missing a lot of fundamental skills in terms of mathematics statistics and computer programming right mm -hmm. so that's the basic skills i don't do a lot of training in that myself um just uh -huh. because there's there's so many people who can do that uh what i focus on more is the business skills of you know once these guys are coming out of a highly technical program or a boot camp um, or straight out of university how can they place themselves within an organization and be effective mm -hmm. and there's several aspects of that one of which is understanding that the larger enterprise around them understanding how different people think how the non-technical people operate what's important to them so that that sort of empathy and understanding your place in the company mm -hmm. and then the other thing is communicating you know and these guys they tend to have a lot of challenges communicating around them um, both in terms of orally but also visually mm -hmm. and part of that is because they're used to functioning within an analytic ecosphere you know communicating with other people like them mm -hmm you know, in their programs and such. Um, and a part of my training is really to help them understand, look, when you're doing emails, when you're doing presentations, PowerPoints, or charts and graphs to people in outside departments, um, what is a way to communicate it very effectively? Are there any particular, like, repeated things that come to mind in terms of guidance that you give, you know, the five bullets or, or something that you kind of see as a, a repeating theme around the communication, particularly the visual, but also the, you know, written? Yeah, and there's just a lot of different stuff I cover, uh, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of it just boils down to understanding the perspective of the people mm -hmm. around you. But that encompasses a tremendous amount of, of different training materials that I have. Right, right. When you have team members that are, that are coming from that background, how do you, and, and the solution that you're working on has a software component, particularly, you know, some type of visual component, what is their role and how do you get them up to speed or how do you work with them if they're going to be involved in that solution that's going to go out? Is it take a, just take a guess and try, like if, if you're starting out from a, a pure data science or stats math background, how do you get to that point where you can deliver a solution that may require a software interface, what's involved in that process? Yeah, so it depends on sort of how it's being deployed. Um, mm -hmm. If you're looking at something that's gonna be deployed as part of a production stack, mm -hmm. um, that's a long road to travel if you don't have the software background, mm -hmm. right? Because then you have to know all this all this stuff about you know the testing, the unit testing, um, regression right. testing, um, sort of everything that a developer knows in order to create robust code, um, mm -hmm. even and then further monitoring and such. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you come out of a math program or something and you don't have that software development experience, um, that's quite a bit of training. And that's a, actually a big stumbling block mm -hmm. for these guys because they know the machine learning techniques and they want to deploy something. Mm -hmm. uh, and they'll start hacking stuff together with whatever code and then they'll go to the development team and, or the IT and they'll say, hey, I built this cool model, can you deploy it? Um, and there's no way that's going to get deployed because it doesn't meet the, the rigorous standards that are necessary. Right. So on the flip side, though, when you have the software developers who already know, you know, how to make things um, robust and such, and these guys say, hey, well, you know, I, I want to try building a regression, building a, you know, Bayesian network or something. Um, there's a, almost a better chance for them to be able to build something that's deployable because mm -hmm. they at least have that foundation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The... Um how does this tie into, uh, so, so another kind of topic that's just been in, in the ether, I guess, around me right now is, is this topic of model trust. Um, if you're 
coming at it from that technical standpoint. Uh, and, and if you think or believe that uh, model trust is an issue, so this is do, do, do my stakeholders believe what I'm showing them? How, how does that play into your process? Um, how, do you, how do you get to the point where you don't wait until you have a great model, but then you mm -hmm. find out someone won't use it? Um, no, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, in the past, uh, I worked with a forecasting project at a client and I had a third party working on something and they went to, you know, they developed some cool model and they went to the stakeholders and they said, look, here's our forecasting model. And the stakeholder looked at it and said, yeah, okay, that's kind of interesting. I'm never going to use it. Right. And then later on, when I was supervising a forecasting uh, project myself, what I did is I, you know, I told my team, I said, look, the first delivery we give to the stakeholders make sure it's something super basic and super obvious, you know, so that they know exactly what we did, why we, why we did it. And they look at it and say, yeah, that makes complete sense. That's what I would have done. You know, give them just a basic regression, a basic ARMA 1-1 model or something, not no bells or whistles. And from there, the next iteration, make it a little more complex and mm -hmm. then a little more complex because you have to get them on board and they have to be nodding their heads um, either asking like one question at each iteration, like that doesn't make sense or nodding their heads and saying, yeah, that makes, makes complete sense. But if you jump in, if you go all the way to an advanced model, like you said, and, and try and throw that at them, if it doesn't make sense and it doesn't agree with what they already saw, then you've completely lost them. Yeah. 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 Get in touch early. <laughs> Stay yeah. in touch. You know, that's kind of the, the, the kicker there. Do you think this overall trend of success or lack thereof in the industry of, of, you know, formerly it was big data projects. Now it's AI. Is this trending in the right direction? Like the, the success rate? I mean, it's been consistently low for a long time. Where is it going? Yeah, I mean, there's there's two things to that. One is that there's always a natural sort of failure rate, even with well-intentioned and well-designed projects. Uh -huh. But then the second thing is we're having this difficulty, having a difficulty because we're used to be a bottom-up and a bottom-up push for data science projects where you know the developers would say, "Hey, I'd love to do this. I'd love to do this," and the management said, "You know, stop bothering us and just do your job." Uh, recently, what's happened is it's been mm -hmm. a top-down, right? So. From board level, they'd say, hey, we need to start doing something with AI, you know, um, with machine learning, with big data. And they'll start throwing budgets at it. But what happens then is that you've got a you know, couple hundred thousand or a couple million from board level coming down to start hiring a team and buying technology. So those these budgets that are made up, you know, at an annual level, after one or two years of, you know, building a team of 20 people or 30 people, then the budget's being renewed and people are going to start asking questions. What value did we get? Well, even at the inception, a lot of these teams, mm -hmm. there wasn't a clear mandate for them. There was a top-down hope that we could leverage a buzzword, right? But two, three years down right. the line, you know, we spent the millions and we've bought the systems and everything. We weren't really sure from the start why. Um, so, of course, there's not tangible value after two, two or three years. And there's still no tangible direction. And then you start to see these things burn out. You know, and you've seen, I've seen some programs already where... After a year or two, it's sort of like, where are we going with this? What's happening? But of course, those that really understand what they're doing and why they're doing it, of course, for these, there's a very real chance of seeing value. And you're seeing a lot of the large companies really capitalizing on these efforts when they initiated the efforts with a clear vision and a clear purpose. Following on to that, then, do you, do you think there's a place for, sometimes I call it laboratory mode, right? Which is maybe the business stakeholder understands that, you know, we're also a data company. 
you know, everybody says that now. I, I know we need to be doing something with this, but I don't understand the technology. I want to know that we're flexing this muscle. We're, we're, we're rehearsing. We're playing scrimmage games, even mm-hmm. if we don't create value. Is there something there to, to be to having a laboratory kind of model, which is maybe you do let some of your, your top talent go try to build a, a, you know, a deep learning network or something like that, back out a project from something, not, not exclusively in their work, but this is like, you know, like 20% time kind of concept. Is there some value in that? Or do you think it's unnecessary to be totally playground uh, with no, 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 absolutely. Right. Absolutely. But this goes back to your design Mm -hmm. thinking, right? So you want to have that initial impetus, like, why Mm -hmm. are we doing this? You know, where might it go? Yeah. Awesome. This has been like super good talk. Do you have any like closing advice for, for listeners? You know, we've got an analytics, data science, technical product managers, some designers, like I know it's a, a wide group of, you know, listeners, but if you had some closing advice for them? Yeah, I would say just, you know, as much as possible to, you know, for people who are in the field and looking to bring value in the companies, as much as possible, talk to people around you, you know, talk to people outside of your team, outside mm-hmm. of your department, um, understand what they're doing, why they're doing why they're doing it and how you can help or how the tools that you have could potentially help because there's a lot of opportunities you know, within companies. It's just, there's not that communication between departments. So uh, yeah, I would just really encourage people to keep that communication open. Nice. Nice. And by the way, how's the mandolin going? The mandolin, <laughs> I'm not getting a whole lot of time with it, but I was thinking about it today. So uh, more focused on the guitar these days, oh, okay. but um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a really uh, real source of, um, potential that I'm not tapping into. <laughs> Excellent. We'll keep practicing. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I will. Tell us uh, obviously I'm going to put a link to your book in the show notes, but where do you publish uh, social media, LinkedIn, any of that stuff? Where can people find you? Yeah, I used to be a little bit better at publishing uh, blogs on LinkedIn and on my website. Okay. To be honest, I'm really behind on that now. I've been so busy with other things. Uh, but hopefully at some point I'll start uh, blogging some more. Nice. Excellent. And you're, if I recall, it's DSI analytics, right? That's it. DSI. Yeah. DSI analytics. Awesome. So I'll, yeah, I'll put a link to that in your, in your uh, LinkedIn profile as well. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a really good, good conversation. Yeah, no, thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to, glad to be here and look forward to uh, seeing you in London soon. Awesome. Yeah. I'm looking forward to speaking there. So take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag experiencing data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast. This has been a HumblePod production. Stay humble.